You're listening to In Conversation from the Educational Freedom Institute. We're live on tons of platforms because uh, we like platform choice, but not as much as we like school choice over here at the Educational Freedom Institute. Um, Yeah, we're going live and uh, we have a very special guest with us today. Uh, Of course, we have Matthew Nielsen, the co-founder of Educational Freedom Institute, and then myself, uh, executive director of Educational Freedom Institute. But our very special guest is Eric Wern. He's an associate professor at Kennesaw State University. Um, fun fact, uh, ben, ben Scaffity, who's been on this show at least once or twice before already, is a professor over there at uh, Kennesaw State as well. I believe you guys are in the same uh, department, the Education Economics Center over there at Kennesaw. He's and- the director, and I work with him, yep. All right, cool. I think, Eric, we the first time we met was at a Journalist School Choice Conference or the uh, International School Choice and Reform yep. Conference, ISCRC. I always forget the uh, the um, acronym for that, but uh, we were in a, in a session room together, and uh, it was good to meet you there. And uh, it actually turns out that now you are a, a book editor of the Journalist School Choice as well. And the reason that we have Eric on the uh, the conversation today is we have a uh, he just came out with a book and we're going to cover you up for a second, Eric. I'm sorry, but uh, it's called Defining Hybrid Homeschools in America: Little Platoons. It's a book that uh, was written by uh, Eric Wern. So um, we're going to be talking a lot about hybrid homeschooling and how it has has to do with uh, the current climate and education reform right now as well. So. Uh, everybody, I would like to welcome Eric Wern. And Eric, could you just start with a little bit of background about, about yourself and maybe how you got interested in education policy overall, and then in particular, um, homeschooling and hybrid homeschooling? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So I um, I did the opposite of what a lot of people who work in ed policy do, which is I grew up in D.C. and then left, never to return. Um, so I uh, I went to to college in Florida. And then after I graduated, I, I was a high school English teacher at just a, a plain conventional public school. Uh, I taught English and debate for a few years up here in Atlanta. Um, after a few years of that, I went and uh, I did my PhD studying education policy at Emory. Uh, so when I finished there, I, I left and I worked for the governor's office of student achievement in Atlanta for a few years. And that's our, um, our state level uh, kind of P20 accountability office. So we did work on, you know, with the legislature and the governor. And um, we did a lot at that time with race to the top and with the standardized testing scandal that some people might remember uh, about 10 years ago. Um, so I left there and then I've been at a few different colleges since then. Um, I was in. Hey, ed- wait, wait, hold on, Eric. What happened with the testing oh. scandal? Yeah, I mean, all three of us know what's going on with the testing scandal in Atlanta. But sure. for listeners, uh, could you give us some background on that? I mean, that's, sure. that's so. Um, so this is, yeah, gosh, uh, I'm getting old. It's it's 11, 11 or so years ago now. Um, we we had, uh, you know, mandated state tests like like everyone does. And my office kind of had been hearing rumors for a while about maybe um, some potential fraud on the tests. And so we started an investigation and which ultimately involved the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, um, and, and a much bigger legal team than my office had. Um, and we found that there was actually some malfeasance in a few different school districts of people kind of changing answers on the tests, um, for, you know, 
first graders up through eighth graders um, and getting uh, benefits or avoiding consequences that they otherwise would have had to face. Um, how, how widespread was that? Do, do you have any statistics on, on that? Um, well, I, it was really concentrated. Know. Yeah, no, yeah, it was really concentrated. So some school districts, you know, basically nothing really happened. Um, in, in other school districts, um, nothing happened in some places, but in particular schools, it was absolutely rampant, right? Where, where entire classes were having their entire, their entire list of kids' scores changed to help them avoid lots of things. Was, yeah. was funding tied to like your performance on the test and would you lose a certain amount of funding if you, if you, if you didn't hit a certain benchmark or something? Well, at that time, yeah, at that time it was still under race to the top and some of the schools would have had sanctions that would have supposedly let their kids um, transfer out to go to other places. A lot of it was more personal stuff. Um, so, you know, your school system would reward you if you met certain targets or you'd get certain other kind of, um, you know, lauds for for getting high test scores so i it it, it was funny not funny it was tragic but it was mm -hmm. interesting and that it, the the motivations and the ways that people did it were were all over the place hmm. it took a lot of different forms Crazy. all right let, let's keep going so how did you yeah. get in you know in, in interest yeah sorry for derailing your intro oh, okay. a little bit but i, I wanted okay. the listeners to know what the heck was going on in atlanta but uh yeah. Yeah, you're, you're, you know, you're interested in, you know, what you're doing at Kennesaw right now, but then also more particularly, what you know, with the, the homeschooling and, and hybrid homeschooling. And then after yeah. that, yeah, just your book is called Defining Hybrid Homeschooling. Right. So, so might as well do that as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I've always been interested in school choice. You know, when I was an undergrad, I, uh, I was getting, I wasn't in an ed program. I was an English major. Um but I was getting certified to teach or going through that, that process. So I had to do some observations and I actually was able to get myself placed in a little charter school um, to do my observations instead of one of the normal public schools on the list that they typically sent us to. Um, and then just over the years in various ways, I've worked with charter schools and private schools and, and different programs. Um, but for the last five years or so, I think my first paper came out about five years ago, I've been really interested in these hybrid homeschools. And so five years ago, no one was really talking about these things. Um, so I've written a series of articles on these hybrid schools. And if it's okay, I'll just get into kind of what they are and how they yeah. work, things like yeah. that. Um, so I'd come across a couple examples of these things. And basically they're schools where the kids go to a physical building two or three days a week and the rest of the week they study at home. So they show up a couple days a week with usually uniforms, but, you know, they have teachers who do the grades and assignments. They have classmates and desks and all these kind of things. The rest of the time they're at home. Um, whenever I would describe this to people five years ago, they would say, oh, that's really interesting. I, I think I've heard of a school like this, but, but it was really rare, right? Even in January of this year, it was really rare to hear about this kind of thing. Um, so I wrote about these schools just to find out, you know, how do these things work? Who, and then this is really what the book is about. Who goes to them and why do they go to them, right? Um, so the typical way these schools work is that they go to, the kids go two or three days a week, but there's a lot of variations, right? Some people put the, the younger kids in two days and the older kids three, some do the opposite. Um, at some schools, they go one day a week and they're home for four. Some schools, they go for four, but only half of the day. Um, so 
there, it's all gray area, right? So a lot of the, the audience is probably saying, well, that sounds a lot like um, a homeschool co-op, right? And it is kind of like that. Um, the distinction that I try to make is that these are a little bit more formalized versions of that, right? So a homeschool co-op, you might go for one class, you might go, you know, just for one hour a week or something like that. At these hybrid schools that I'm talking about, the kids are actually enrolled students of the schools um, and they're kind of more, more structured institutions. Um, so I found uh, that the more I kind of started looking for these schools, the more of them I found, <laughs> right? So if you start, it started snowballing, right? So I started by word of mouth hearing about schools here and there. Um, there are several big networks. The, the oldest network is called the, they changed their name. They're now called the National, no, that's the old name. The real name now is the University Model Schools International, um, which is from Texas, Corey, and they, um, <laughs> works, right? Uh, so they've got, uh, they're by far the biggest and they've been around since the early nineties, right? But there's a couple others. There's a Catholic version, uh, Regina Chaley schools. There's, there's a, there's a few other, um, networks out there, but then there are also a lot of independent schools. So I've done over the past few years, a couple of different surveys to find out who, who go, first of all, how do these schools work, which I've kind of talked about. And then who goes to them, right? Are these people private school families who are leaving the private schools? Are they homeschoolers? Um, what are they? So one uh, second, Eric. Formally, yeah. would these would would this be what 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 like legal um, definition does this fall under? Does is it regulated as a private school? Is it regulated as homeschooling? Both? Does it depend on the, the yeah. place? How does how does that work? Yeah, I'm actually working on a paper right now about that exact topic. Um, but what I found anecdotally so far is that it's all over the place. Um, it depends on the state and. One story I like to tell, I don't know if the schools are still set up this way, but I found two schools that a few years ago that are about 10 miles apart. They're in the same state. Um, and I asked this question to that principal. I said, how are you, you know, are you a private school or are you a set of homeschoolers? How are you regulated? And he said, um, well, we're actually, um, we're a private school. We operate like a private school um, and we're accredited that way. And then I drove, you know, 10 minutes down the road and I talked to another guy, another principal, his school set up the exact same way. And I said, how are, how are you, you know, how do you operate? How are you regulated? And he said, oh, we're, we're homeschoolers that just come together a couple times a week. Right. Um, and so basically what, what the first principal said is the you know, state regulators just don't know what to do with us. Um, partially it's because they're so weird looking partially it's because they're kind of thin on the ground in a lot of places. Um, so some states will tell you, you know, these are the rules and you operate like the private school. Other states say, you know, well, if you're not one of our public schools, then you're, you're whatever, you're a private school, you're a home Non-public. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, in a lot of places, it depends on the grade level, right? So if you're, if you're not in high school, then you kind of don't care as much and you can operate as a homeschooler. But if you want to be accredited and you want your kids to get certain, like in Georgia, we have state um, college scholarships that are easier to get if you're accredited by, you know, an accreditor off of a certain list, then it makes sense to kind of act as a private school for those grades, but I maybe mean, not for the younger grades. So it's all over the place. And I kind of like that, right? Like, I think that's kind of a feature, not a bug of the way these things work. There's, there's not really the right answer because all these schools are set up in such particular ways that it doesn't really matter except so 
for particular questions. I, I have a question for you, Eric, and mm -hmm. maybe you'll get here. So I apologize if I'm jumping the gun, but tell me funding. So mm -hmm. are in any case, are tax dollars used that you've seen for for any of these schools or is it really it's look it's either homeschool or it's private school mm -hmm. both of course are you know privately funded by families uh any any variation in that yep so this is one of the questions i asked in my most recent survey um which is you know are there other school choice programs that you participate in um or are there some that are available that you don't participate in maybe because sometimes they like flying under the radar um, <clears throat> so tip list, so let me back up and just say a little bit about this too, because these schools are so, uh, because of the way they operate, they're part-time, typically they'll have, uh, one full-time employee, which is the director. Uh, and then they'll have teachers who come in for an hour or two or three or whatever a week that are part-time they're paid as, you know, adjuncts or contractors or whatever. Um, They'll rent space, but not for the whole week. So they don't own it, right? Maybe they rent it from a church or from another private school. So their tuitions nationally, the average is a little under $5,000, um, which is useful to a lot of people for reasons that I, I can get into in, in a little bit. Um, so their costs are really low. Some of the schools um, participate in some of these taxpayer funded programs, but it doesn't seem like very many of them, right? Something like an ESA, you know, typically the, the amounts that you hear thrown out would cover pretty much the whole cost of a hybrid homeschool in most places. Hmm. Right? Um, but they, they seem to not typically be going that direction now. Now there are also um, some charter school versions of these things, right? The most, uh, the highest number I found is out in California. There's a set in San Diego. There's a couple in Northern California. So obviously they're getting taxpayer funding to operate this way. Um, but yeah, a, a lot of times, you know, they, they may be eligible, but they're avoiding it. We can hear your typing, hey, Corey. Yeah. That's not my typing. Is that is that? It's not me. Maybe I tap my computer. <laughs> I think it's. Oh, I think you. I think we're good now. I think we're good now. Something's yeah. oh, okay. On. Okay. I was, okay. I was like, started looking around, making funny faces. What's going? I was on? like, Cor Corey's looking up some website. Sometimes, yeah, I'll yeah, go and type stuff. <laughs> yeah. So there are some cases, but but sometimes, you know, but it, it's not. It doesn't seem to be very widespread. Yeah. Hmm. So um, you're saying that the cost, I guess, is somewhere, you know, what do you have like an average tuition number in particular places that you've seen? Is it like a couple thousand, you know, a few thousand yeah. a year? Yeah. So the it typically, so it'll vary by grade level usually. And, um, it's, you know, a lot, they'll give sibling discounts. Most schools do things like that. Um, but it, a, a common or, or the average is, is south of $5,000 a year. Right. Um, so and it's even less than that in, in lower grades, usually. And are these more common, Eric, in like elementary grades or our kid, our families doing this all the way through senior year of high school? Yeah, there are both. Right. So there are plenty of them that go all the way. Through, but I would say there's more elementary grades. Um, mm -hmm. and, and is the reason because, you know, because one of the first questions is like, well, why not just do homeschooling full time? Is it because, you know, it just based on the individual circumstance of the family that they have a certain work schedule that can, that they can do it for a couple of days and then, but they can't do it five days a week. Is that like the main? Yeah. There are so many different reasons, right? So 
So uh, I, I talk in the book about this, uh, and it's changing over time. But but in the moment, it seems like there's a there's a pretty good mix of people who come from full time private schools into these things, but they're not um, either because they don't want to pay so much tuition, or because they just want more flexibility in their time. Right? They want to be able to go um, to go see grandma in the next state every weekend. Right? Or or they just don't like the the feeling of being in a rat race for for um, 40 hours a week when you're a kid, right? So some people come for that reason. Um, there are lots of homeschoolers that just want more support as the kids get older. Um, math gets harder, science gets more complicated. Um, curriculum some, choices probably is one thing, yeah, isn't it, Eric? Curriculum choice is a big deal. Um, as you get closer to college, some people want some kind of like validation or, or credential that they can that they can feel more comfortable with. Um, some people, you know, they just feel like they can pull it off with the younger mm -hmm. kids. They want more support when the kids get older, or they want to be part of a, uh, part of a, uh, a community, right? So there's, there's a, there's a, there's a, a sense that people like about coming together, right? Uh, and then just picking out, uh, the full curriculum for all the subject areas. It's nice to have some entity that you trust kind of doing that for you. Mm -hmm. So from so, all kinds so of generations. So Eric, a lot of the, you know, in the, in the homeschooling debate, a lot of people, you know, one of the first things that they'll say is homeschooling sounds great and all for a very small subset of families, but homeschooling is not for everyone. Do you agree, disagree? What's your take on that kind of um, logic uh, that, that people have uh, when it comes to the homeschooling debate? Yeah. Homeschooling is difficult, right? So you have to kind of be bought into it if you're, if you're going to do it. That's why um, this spring was so crazy for so many people. Um, the good news, it, I feel like, out of this spring is more people realize, oh, I can kind of handle this than, than you might have expected, right? Um, but, but yeah, I think more people can do it than think they can do it, right? And certainly if you've got, um, you know, your curriculum and your assignments and your grading are being handled by, um, you know, an outside entity that the family kind of trusts, and, uh, you know, I think, I think a really important aspect of these schools that um, even school choice advocates sometimes overlook is just the community aspect, right, of coming together as a group um, and kind of having support from people around you to be able to pull this kind of thing off. So you wrote, a, you wrote an article in The Federalist called um, Coronavirus School Closures Show the Value of Hybrid Homeschools. What's your main thesis behind that argument? And... Um, how does this how does this really relate to COVID nineteen and, and school closures? Yeah, well, the funny thing is, I like I said earlier, I uh, when I would talk about these kind of schools a few years ago, people would say, "Hmm, that's interesting. I, I would like to see something like that." And then suddenly, this spring, everything fell apart, and this fall, people are trying out all kinds of different stuff that looks like what I've been talking about. <laughs> um, but uh, in the spring, I heard from a couple of school leaders who would say, "You know, our state shut down in March." And um, people had a lot of trouble, but but at our school, we really didn't miss much of a beat. And the reason is, um, the teachers and the students and the parents were all sort of used to kind of handling a lot of things on their own, right? So if you're at a hybrid homeschool, a lot of times what will happen is your teacher will post, um, you know, your lesson plans for the week on Monday, 
uh, and you just know what you have to accomplish and what you're going to work on on the class days. But on the home days, you kind of work through it on your own. You communicate with your teacher online if you if you need help or something like that. So these schools had been doing that for forever. So when they shut down in March, it was annoying to not be able to go in, you know, on the class days. But but they had kind of some practice in how to work on their own at their own pace. Um, you know, work with with their siblings. I have a bunch of kids at my house that are used to kind of like avoiding each other or or whatever as they as they work. Um, so a lot of these hybrid you know, a lot of these hybrid families had, had been used to it. So um, what I've been seeing across the country and it's starting again, is that uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, public school systems just fighting to, to stay closed uh, five, you know, zero in-person instruction at all. And they're citing, uh, you know, the coronavirus as a reason as to why they shouldn't have to return to school buildings have you seen any of that with the hybrid homeschool communities? I mean, of course, in, in some places, it's just illegal to have any of the schools open public or private. Yeah. But in places where it's legal and you have the public schools fighting for no in-person instruction, are the hybrid homeschools doing that too? Are they saying, you know, uh, we were doing one day a week, now we want to do zero? Or are they keeping that one or two days a week? Or yeah. do you have any examples of, you know, any communities of hybrid homeschools? Yeah, I'm sure people could come up with counterexamples of this, but the, the ones that I've come across are, first of all, they're already they're already kind of cut down on, you know, physical time together because they're only there two or three days a week. Mm -hmm. so that's already been cut. Um, and they're doing things like some of them are requiring masks, some are not, some are, you know, giving you the option. Um, they're kind of spacing out physically on the days that they're there. Um, but otherwise... For the most part, I don't I don't see hybrid schools saying, you know what, we're just going to stay home. What they're saying is we're going to we're going to be a little more careful. You know, if you if you feel a little bit sick, just stay home. Mm -hmm. And because I mean, in that in that yeah. scenario, it's not really a hybrid homeschool anymore. It's just full full on homeschooling or virtual yes. learning with with the provider. Um, I will say one difference with a lot of these schools is uh, with a lot of the the conventional schools that you'll see them doing online school. It, it they have the kids kind of tied to a computer screen for eight hours a day with 10 minute breaks or whatever built in. The hybrid schools don't really work like that. They, on the home days, they'll give you, you know, your work to do, or they'll say, some of them will say, um, here's what you're talking about this week. Your parents need to come up with some kind of enrichment for that. Um, but they're not having the kids kind of glued to a computer screen all day long. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And I know it's hard to get real time data on this, so I don't, I don't expect you to answer affirmatively here, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, do you know, Eric, are there, is there an uptick in hybrid homeschooling since the, you know, since March, essentially, are they growing? Um, again, I, I know it could it's probably really difficult to get that kind of data that fast, but what are you seeing? Yeah, well, you're in luck because you guys are anticipating more of my my current survey that just closed. So <laughs> all the way through the data yet, um, but I did I did a national survey. I've got I've got a bunch of schools in uh, twelve or fifteen different states um, who responded to it, and um, they're typically what they said is the the virus extracurriculars if they offered them pretty significantly, right? Mm -hmm. They impacted their academics a little bit, but their finances not so much because they could they could switch really fast. And 
most of the schools, I, I won't say all of them, but almost all of them have seen small, um, at least small, if not large increases in enrollment this year, right? Mm. They were plan they, they planned from the beginning, like we're gonna, we're not gonna leave you guys in limbo and we're not gonna shut down. We're gonna press ahead. This is true with a lot of, of private schools though. Mm. You know, it was funny in my uh, county here in Georgia, within about five hours of each other, um, the, the huge public school system shut down and, or they said they were gonna do online to start the school year. And the Catholic schools in the archdiocese here said, we're all open. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I think hybrids as private, they're mostly private schools and they're mostly religious schools of one kind or another, but they, they basically said, we're going to stay open. Well, well, with, 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 with that, we've seen some governments um, closing down private school competition after the public schools close mm -hmm. after seeing enrollments dropping in, in the public schools. And we've seen in places like uh, Massachusetts and Colorado, where pandemic pods have, have been getting additional regulations. And, I'm, and that doesn't mean that people in the public school explicitly lobbied for that to happen, but it's uh, kind of hard not to see that there's a benefit to the public schools of having their competition shut down. Have you seen anything like that happening with hybrid homeschools where there's like increases in regulations recently or any, you know, um, trying to close them down as a private school, even though that you can argue that they're kind of like a quasi private school? Yeah. Aside from, you know, whatever statewide things or citywide things are going on, I haven't heard anything like that, but I'll tell you, a lot of these schools, they, they like, they like flying under the radar. <laughs> um, and, and there's no reason they shouldn't, right? They're just kind of doing their thing. There's no reason they need to be, uh, you know, they're not trying, a lot of them are not trying to scale into these huge, um, these huge networks or systems, even though a couple of them had, what they're trying to do is like solve a really local problem with their group of people. Um, and so, uh, I think, yeah, I haven't, I haven't heard about them being targeted specifically, but that goes back to what, what that principal told me a couple of years ago. People just don't know what to do with them. Mm -hmm. So, Which is good. <laughs> yeah, it is good. Hand, hands off. So uh, two, I have two questions for you real quick relative to just the scope of, uh, of what you're talking about here. Um, the hybrid homeschool. So first, um, what are like the top three off the top of your head, just um, top three or top five states in the country for enrollment or participation in these? And then a kind of related follow-up, um, did that also correlate, I assume it did, with your um, highest number of respondents to the, your recent survey, Eric? Yeah. So what you'll see is most of the, most of the schools are located on this in this arc from Virginia down through the South into Texas. And then there, and then there's groups in Colorado and California. Um, and there's some in other States too, but that's, that's, you know, the South and into Texas is where you'll see most of the schools. Hmm. Um, yeah. So, so I would say the biggest States are the ones that I've over time, I've had the most, the most uh, contact with are probably like Texas, Georgia, North Carolina, Tennessee, um, you know, Places like that. That's interesting. You know, North Carolina. So there, um, just because I know this and I looked at it recently, um, and I don't know exact numbers. You might, Eric, but public school enrollment is the highest. Of course, they have the largest share of kids enrolled in public schools, district schools in North Carolina. But 
then second with like a, a huge percentage is homeschool. <laughs> it's like, what is it, Corey? Like 146,000 kids or something like that? Like 8% of the total um, in North Carolina. It's the highest state with it's huge uh, homeschooling for sure. Yeah. The second highest state is Arkansas with like 3.4%. Before, so, like, I mean, it's probably bigger, the, higher yeah. than 8 or 3% this year. Yeah. Giant gap though, right? Yeah. They're like far and away the biggest. Yeah. It's interesting. So Eric, um, as far as, uh, you, you know, you've been talking about hybrid homeschools for a while. You, you wrote a book on it that just came out, which I'll share in the, in the links again for everybody to make sure everybody goes and gets it. What are some of the arguments that people have made to you against this concept of hybrid homeschooling or are people mostly accepting of it? Or do people say, Oh, but what about this? Or what about this? And what are your responses to, um, those kind of claims, if if there are any big claims that that are yeah yeah um, there have been many arguments against it, but I'll give you some that I that I have come up with uh, in in my work on it. Um, so uh, for the most part, people think, oh, that's really interesting. Um, it really is the best of both worlds, right? Like you have um, you have some you have more time with your families with your kids. They're not super stressed out as much about school, um, and they get kind of the the ability to be with a group of kids and with teachers and, and, and have all that kind of stuff um, done for them. Um, but from the, from the, from the, from the side of starting and running a school, you, you get the best of both worlds, but you get the worst of both worlds too. Right. So you end up with a situation where you've got to run, you know, they're basically like a charter school or a private school. You've got a nonprofit entity you have to run. You still got to do hiring and management and governance stuff. Um, you still got to do academic work with the teachers, like academic coaching. Um, but you've also pulled in this group of really independent minded homeschooling families, right. Who are often not, not used to, or interested in taking directions from anybody. So if you're going to have, you know, a, a curriculum guide or a pace that you have to keep up with, that's a whole new challenge that you have to work with. Right. Um, you also end up with this thing that happens in charter schools, this, this founder's disease, right. Where people have a great idea for a school. And they can really sell it and they've got a great curriculum in mind, um, but they're not used to like keeping the lights on or doing HR kind of stuff. Right. So, so you really have to cover a lot of bases if you're going to operate one of these things. So that's one, that's one, another one. The other big one that I mentioned is the pushback I get is from actually homeschoolers. Um, so, which I'll acknowledge, um, the name hybrid homeschooling bothers. I think, I think I heard you in a, <laughs> yeah. in a conversation in Florida at the yeah. ISCRC with uh, some homeschoolers that uh, yeah. you guys were getting a little bit of back and forth. Maybe this yeah. was a couple of years ago, I think. <laughs> yeah. And I take the point, the point is that, that homeschoolers will make is, well, if, if teachers are giving assignments and doing the grades and running the classes, that's not homeschooling. Homeschooling is the parents running the show for the kids, which I understand um, hybrid homeschooling is kind of a term of art, but I think people understand the point, right? Like you're, uh, yeah, it's not against the concept itself. It's more right. about labels and what people want to call it. Right. And, and I, I argue in the book that, um, you know, maybe the term hybrid schools would work 10 or 15 years ago when people said hybrid schools, it kind of meant something like online schooling. Mm -hmm. So hybrid schools may come back, except this, this coronavirus has re-muddied the waters on that because yeah, public schools are doing doing that now. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't know, but 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 a lot of these hybrid homeschool families see themselves as homeschoolers, right? And a lot of them are past homeschoolers, 
And they really have the heart of homeschoolers. They don't want their kids at school 35 or 40 hours a week. They want to work with them at home. Um, and so they, they call themselves homeschoolers. Um, so I think it's fair. I think the term is still fair. But th that's I think the structure is different from what the public schools are doing too, right? I think most public schools doing the remote learning, they're kind of trying to replicate what they would have been doing and with the right. full-time Friday days a week and just having kids on Zoom all day. Right. And it's, you know, it's been a disaster in so many places. So that right. seems to be a different just structure, structurally. Um, yeah, so. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll just say, so, um, you know, that a lot of families are in a similar position um, as my family, where for four hours, four hours, yeah, it was like four hours this morning. I had my son in my office with me, a, f a second grader working on math and, you know, going through writing and reading and stuff like that. And we're all kind of, you know, we've, we've said this before. Like I think when we had Carrie McDonald on our title was we're all homeschoolers now. Right. It's like, that's what, that's where we are. But, um, but it's interesting how quickly we get it done. You know, I mean, I, I send, it, this is, this is where I'm really going with this. So it's like, he was here for the morning. He was here for four hours, but we really only did like maybe two and a half hours of work. And that's probably about what he gets at school, you know, in like a seven, seven and a half hour day. So, um, so I can see why homeschooler fam homeschool families are like, no, we homeschool. Um, I want you to take care of like the special specialty, the, the technical stuff because I'm just not a science person or I'm just not great at math. I want you to take that. I'll do the rest. I'll do the, all, all the enrichment. We'll go to the museum. We'll build things. We'll watch a documentary. We'll do whatever. We'll fill in the gaps. Right. And so I can see how, I mean, you really re literally can get done the same amount of work in about a third of the time, maybe half the time at most. So is, we've been talking a lot about micro schools with like uh, Prenda. Uh, we had Prenda CEO uh, Kelly Smith on, on the show a few months ago. And uh, is there any um, complications with defining hybrid homeschools and micro schools? Is there any overlap there? Um, because I could kind of think of how like perhaps if you have a, 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 a hybrid homeschool that isn't actually in a regular school building, but it's in a, in one person's household. Yeah. Have you had that kind of conversation or? Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is where, you know, the book is called defining hybrid homeschools, but when you defining it too tightly is, is probably a mistake, right? So just for operational reasons and for research reasons, I've defined it the way I kind of talked about, but yeah, there's overlap. Um, micro schools is kind of, I would say like a bigger catch all term because those things can look lots of different ways. Um, you know, with things happening in a school or happening very part-time to look more like a homeschool co-op. Um, so, so the hybrid schools, the, the angle that I kind of take on it is both the, the structure of the schooling and the idea that these are, these are kind of, well, like in the time, they're little platoons of people coming together to kind of, to kind of build sort of countercultural institutions that are going to serve their very local communities. But what what's cool about that um, is that the independent groups are really probably just groups of it's it really is a homeschool co-op that's a little more formalized, 
like they've chosen to get a facility. They've chosen to create a um, just more formality and more structure around what normally you would just call, well, it's a homeschool co-op, right? Well, they have, they have a lot of origin stories, right? So some of them will be, um, yeah, here's a group of parents that were homeschooling around their basement table and then more people came on. And then, like you said, suddenly they have to rent space and then I guess we need uniforms and all this other kind of stuff, right? Other times it'll, they'll, they'll be sort of a, uh, a program that's a ministry of a church that starts up. They want to start a school. Um, some public schools have, have started trying this kind of thing. They're a little bit more leery of kind of letting go of control of things, but, but there are some public systems that are, that are giving it a shot and setting up stuff like this. Hmm. Interesting. So what are, tell us, Eric, what are, what is the biggest group you mentioned? UMSI. Did I get that right? Yep. Um, and they're out of Texas and then there are others like what, what is the biggest network? How, what's the scale we're talking about? Yeah. So the university model schools, um, it's a membership network. Um, so schools can kind of, kind of join it. I, they've got something on the order of a hundred something schools, right? Regina Chaley is the, the a smaller Catholic one. They've, they're probably approaching 20. Um, and then there are Aquinas Learning Centers, which are is smaller and a little bit more loose in a lot of ways. Um, there's a, yeah, so there, yeah, there's the website. Um, um, but there's a huge number of just independent schools and they're, part of my work is just locating them. They're kind of hard to find, right? Because um, if I'm searching for one of these schools, I'll either hear about it from word of mouth or I'll go look, but the name is never it's never like Atlanta hybrid homeschool, right? It's going to be something like Atlanta Academy. And so then mm -hmm. I, I can see how it's actually set up and is it what I'm talking about? Yeah. So, but I find the more I search, the more, the more I kind of am finding these schools. And I think now at this point, um, part in large part because of coronavirus, but <laughs> even before that, there was some momentum between, you know, this desire for more individualized schooling um, technology is better. It's just making it easier. And people have had more practice. Um, there's a lot of, uh, of um, demand out there, hunger for starting up this kind of thing, independently of, of the networks. So if you have founded one of these schools, you attend or send your kids to one of these schools, send Eric Wern a direct message on Twitter. <laughs> Send him an email. Identify yourself. Or start start <laughs> using the terminology. Start using yeah, hey. hybrid homeschooling. It'll be easier to search them out. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they got to call themselves academies. So that, uh... yeah. Well, call yourself what you want, but hit me up on. on, 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 on Send them a anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so Eric, cool. biggest takeaway from your book that you want people to get thirty second, one minute elevator pitch for your book. What? What's the last thing you want to leave people with? Um, of course, obviously buy the book. And I'll put yeah, the link yeah. in there again, but uh, what's your big big takeaway? Yeah, that's a good one. But the big takeaway is a, a huge value in this school is, or this type of school, is the, the, the gap that it fills, right? So typically, um, there are two ways people can access choice. One is to either attend a really low-performing school, and if you do that, then you'll get um, state and local choice programs directed to you or people will open charter schools in your area. So that's one way. Or just be really rich. And so you can move to a district that you like or stroke <laughs> off a tuition check for your kids. Right. 
So who gets left out of that is the this big group in the middle that doesn't qualify for state or local programs. There's no charter schools around them. They can't afford to write the big checks and their kids go to probably okay schools, but they're maybe not serving them as well as they want them to. Um, so what we're finding is this, this um, broad middle class, it's not, it's not the middle of the income distribution necessarily. They're wealthier than that, but it's not the top 1% either who are starting up and running these schools, right? So you have a group of people who come together and they can start these schools. They have the capacity to do it in groups and the price point of you know $5,000 or less puts it in reach of a lot more people. Um, so I think if you're interested in school choice, you can't leave out this gigantic, this gigantic group in the middle and just assume that they're okay, right? Because uh, I know there's a lot of research that a lot of these suburban schools are fine, but they're only fine, right? Or, mm-hmm. right? or their political indoctrination factor. Yeah, and, and if you want a curriculum out, right, <laughs> then your choices are to move to a place you might not want to move or get rich again, right? So, so a, another option that these schools represent is, is kind of a way that you can come together, that it's, it's a really healthy, I think, example of civil society in America kind of reasserting itself and starting um, these, these small local groups that are, that are just purpose-built to, to educate smaller groups of kids. Hmm. Absolutely. Good, good uh, uh, closing and, um, you know, elevator pitch on your book again for everyone here. I'm going to, I'm going to put this over your face really quickly, Eric. Sorry, but uh, defining hybrid homeschools in America, little platoons by Eric Wern, who has been on our uh, podcast for uh, quite amount of time, a good amount of time today. I hope everybody uh, learned a lot from Eric. I did uh, as well, even though I've been in this uh, kind of, movement for a long time already. Um, wealth of information in, in what, uh, listening to Eric. And then also, of course, I'm sure there's tons of information to get out of his book. If you want to follow Eric, you can follow him on Twitter at uh, Eric underscore Wern. Um, and as you can see, his cover photo is uh, of his new book, mm-hmm. Defining Hybrid Homeschools in America. Eric, uh, where else could we could we find your work? Uh, where should we uh uh, send people to to look at maybe some of your longer form stuff uh, at Kennesaw. Yeah, so I've I've got a couple of academic pieces out, but some other more more recent stuff is um, the the Daily Signal. I've written a couple pieces at the Federalist, and I had uh, another another few at a website called the Imaginative Conservative that you can find there too. Cool, excellent, sounds great. I just put your uh, Daily Signal piece into the uh, chat. Uh, I just want to. Again, thank you very much, Eric, for for joining us on the Educational Freedom Institute live video podcast. Uh, Again, we all learned a lot from your wealth of information. I hope everybody goes out and gets the book, um, Defining Hybrid Homeschools in America, Little Platoons. Um, Until next time, this was the Educational, uh, Educational Freedom Institute in Conversation podcast. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Eric. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. You can find EFI online at efinstitute.org, on Twitter at EF underscore Institute, and on Facebook at Educational Freedom Institute.